All right, welcome to the Jason Timph Podcast. Thank you guys for taking time out of your day and your busy weeks to come hang out with me for a little bit and talk some basketball. Um, I hope you guys are all uh, staying safe this holiday weekend and not doing anything stupid like running off and getting COVID. Um, I promise you it's not worth the 10 days you have to lock yourself in your house after. And that's if you just so happen to not get symptoms, which makes it that much worse. My wife just finished her quarantine today and is just getting back to work. And she's, you know, behind and everything. And she's really been struggling trying to float the ship from home. And that's just really, really hard. So I hope that all of you make responsible decisions this weekend. If you're going to hang out with your family, try to do it in a way that's not going to uh, lead to a bunch of consequences after the fact. Um, today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Laker offseason. I know it's not completely done, but these last couple moves, these last couple veteran minimum spots that they have are most likely going to be used on guys who are going to be good locker room presences because you don't want to uh, play too much with that chemistry on the team. So I don't think there's too much more we have to wait for there. And then if they do end up trading Kyle Kuzma, my guess is it won't happen until the trade deadline this year. So I think what you've seen in the last week is basically what you're going to get as far as the Lakers go heading into training camp and into the first few months of the season. Uh, Then I have a a little point I want to make about Trey Young and Devin Booker, a couple of guys who a lot of people who are fans of Atlanta and fans of Phoenix have been defending for a long time. Uh, and I'm just going to explain why I think it's okay to show just a little bit of hesitancy with those types of guys after spending all those years playing losing basketball. And then last but not least, uh, a lot of my Steph Curry fan friends, a lot of my Golden State Twitter friends out there uh, are always frustrated with the type of doubt that is casted towards Steph Curry. And you're seeing a lot of that again this year. Um, as we head into this in, uh, this uh, Clay Thompson injury season. And so I want to talk a little bit about why I think Steph gets so much doubt placed in his direction. And honestly, you know, th- I understand that it can be unfair at times, but it's just a reality of his situation. And I think it's why he's discussed the way he's discussed. So I'll get to that here in a little bit. But let's start with the Lakers. So I think the Lakers had a nearly perfect offseason. And I think it's okay to acknowledge the fact that it wasn't perfect. And quite frankly, if any GM was always perfect, they'd win a title every single year, and that's just not possible. Everybody does the best they can. They make a series of moves. You make swings. You make uh, you make you take risks, and you hope that most of them work out in your favor. And for the record, the Lakers did mostly good. And uh, one of my favorite things is uh, a lot of the moves that they made remind me kind of of the moves that the Cleveland Cavaliers made at the trade deadline in 2018 in the sense that they are kind of swing for the fences types of moves that have major upside like Trez, like Dennis Schroeder. But at the same time, they didn't sacrifice their core identity of the team. If you remember with that 2018 Cavs team, they brought in Rodney Hood who was a a guy who always had a lot of potential, but no one was ever really sure if he was going to be able to, you know, uh, contribute in a winning environment. And then, you know, Larry Nance Jr. was a very athletic and exciting prospect that was playing for the Lakers. George Hill was a guy who had played in a bunch of big playoff series with Indiana and with San Antonio. There was a lot of like hope that those guys would potentially raise the ceiling, 
But then in the postseason, when the shit hit the fan, they were able to fall back on their core lineup, which was J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver, LeBron, Kevin Love, and Tristan Thompson. And they did that to beat the Indiana Pacers in the first round, and they went back to that lineup often in the later rounds of that of that playoff run. The point being, they were, they made moves that were aggressive, that had the ability to potentially lead to massive a massive raising of their ceiling, but at the same time, they kept their identity. And that's what I love about these Laker moves. Montrez Harrell could end up being a massive ceiling raiser for the Lakers, and we'll talk about why in a minute. Same goes for Dennis Schroeder. But again, if the shit hits the fan and those guys aren't really panning out, you've still got Alex Caruso, you still got Contavious Caldwell-Pope, you still got LeBron, you still got Anthony Davis, you still got Markeith Morris, Wesley Matthews is basically a a reasonable facsimile of Danny Green. He can fill his role pretty well. The point being is those that Keith signing and that Contavious Caldwell Pope signing were both extremely important because they allowed the Lakers to maintain their core identity. So they can fall back to that brand of basketball. Should things not work out with their, uh, more aggressive moves that they made in the offseason. So that's what I liked. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, you know, what I, what I really like about those individual players. But the one thing that made this offseason less than perfect, in my opinion, was the Montrez Harrell signing. And I know a lot of my Laker friends out there are taking a glass-half-full approach to this. And don't get me wrong, I am too. I also believe that Montrez will work out at least to some extent with the Lakers, but it was the one real shaky move in the sense that it caused a lot of dominoes to fall with other players on the roster. And it really hamstrings their, uh, their flexibility moving forward. So for instance, as you guys know that Montrez Harrell signing triggered the hard cap for the Lakers, which led to among other things, Dwight Howard and Avery Bradley leaving because both of those players had they not had a hard cap, the Lakers would have been able to match their contract offers and they would have come back. So for instance, let's say uh, I said, I said from the very beginning, the only player that I thought was worth the hard cap was Serge Ibaka. I thought that he significantly raised the Lakers ceiling because of his perimeter shooting and because he's a very good defensive player at the five. And so That was the one move that I thought was worth all of the potential dominoes falling, the Avery Bradley leaving, the Dwight Howard leaving, the hard capping of the uh, of the team for the rest of the season. That was the one guy that I thought that was worth. But we don't know for sure whether Serge would have come. So even in the scenario where Serge was for sure going to the Clippers, I still think Montrez wasn't worth all of the other handicapping that he did to the roster. For instance, for a lot of you guys who have said to me in recent days, Wesley Matthews would have triggered triggered the hard cap. That's true. However, you can use a portion of that mid-level exception without triggering the hard cap. And the Lakers could have used that portion of the, uh, of the mid-level exception to sign Wesley Matthews instead of using that biannual exception. In addition to that, they could have brought back Dwight Howard. So let's say Dwight Howard takes all of Trez's minutes or a a portion of Trez's minutes. And even though he's a very different player, you can actually, you can relatively assume that he'd give you roughly 
70% of his expected impact on the game because at least the, the, the defensive matchups that played him off the floor theoretically will do the same thing to Montrez. And while Montrez Harrell has a much higher offensive ceiling, Dwight Howard did have a much higher defensive ceiling. So consider that to be not a wash. Trez is a better player, but Dwight Howard is at least in the same ballpark of impact in that position. So theoretically, it's not just signing Montrez Harrell. It's signing Montrez Harrell, and it costs you Dwight, and it costs you Avery Bradley. So there was a universe where the Lakers could have had a more conservative approach to the offseason. Let's say they call they call Serge Ibaka, and Serge Ibaka says, heck no, I'm playing with Kawhi. There's no way in the world I'm coming to LA to, to play with the Lakers. Okay, fine. You sign Montrez Harrell, you excuse me, you signed Dwight Howard at his 10% raise or whatever it was for three million bucks. You sign Wesley Matthews for the half of the, the uh, mid-level exception. You sign, uh, um, you sign uh, Marcus Saul for the veteran minimum contract. And you sign Avery Bradley for his regular 10% raise or whatever. Now you've got that extra body in the backcourt so that when you play downsize, when you play LeBron at the four and Anthony Davis at the five, you have the ability to uh, have five guards to rotate through those three spots as opposed to four guards. Uh, because KCP, uh, Alex Caruso, Dennis Schroeder, and uh, Wesley Matthews are your core four. Now, maybe maybe the Lakers are uh, told Avery Bradley, like, hey, we plan on playing a lot of talent, Horton Tucker. We don't know. I'm just operating under the premise that the Lakers could have had those guys back, had a little bit more depth. Dwight Howard fits into whatever that Montrezl Harrell role is. And then most importantly, as the season progresses, if a need arises – and a Nick Batum type of player comes available, you have the ability to sign him. <clears throat> you have the ability to constantly go over the cap for a veteran minimum contract as the season progresses. Who knows who's going to get hurt? Who knows what's going to happen? You always have that fallback option of signing a veteran minimum player. That is off the table as a result of the Montrez Harrell signing. And so as a result... Now your only option to improve the roster or to add depth should injuries become a problem is you have to take a bigger salary player. You have to take somebody like a, uh, 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 like a Montrez Harrell or a Contavious Caldwell-Pope, and you have to trade them and take back multiple players. That's your only way to fill roster spots at that point because the hard cap is the hard cap. There is absolutely no exception to that rule. Just ask any Golden State Warrior fan who was rooting for them last year. So my, my whole point, following kind of to, to, to put a bow on it, is that the Montrez Harrell signing in a vacuum for $9 million a year is amazing. Maybe he raises your ceiling. He certainly helps with your bench lineups. And you've already got your core crunch time guys. So if Montrez doesn't really work as a crunch time player, you can fall back to your core lineups. So it makes sense in that context. However... When you actually factor in all of the other dominoes that fell, losing Avery Bradley, losing Dwight Howard, losing the flexibility to sign veteran minimum players later on in the season, I thought that that was a mistake. And with all of those potential losses, I thought Serge Ibaka was the only player that would have been worth tying off all of those other loose ends to get. And so I thought that that was the one, you know, one potential thing that would have been a mistake out of this offseason. Other than that, Rob Polinka completely knocked it out of the park. I think Wesley Matthews is a much better player than Danny Green. I think he's much better at the point of attack. I thought Danny Green and his 
tendency to give up a lot of straight line drives really hurt the Laker defense. I thought it, it, it caused them to exist too much in chaos, which while they were good at that, it wasn't ideally what you'd like to do. And, and, ironic, and, and the most important thing is existing in chaos takes a lot of energy. And that's one of the big reasons why the Lakers would on some nights have inconsistent defensive performances because effort is hard to bring on an, on a night to night basis and if you've got a lot of guys that are giving up straight line drives, you're going to constantly be living in rotation, which is going to expose a team that doesn't necessarily play hard on that particular night, which the Lakers, like I said, had a tendency to do from time to time. Rajon Rondo and Danny Green were both the worst players on the Laker roster as it, as it pertained to giving up straight line drives. There was almost no resistance from quicker guards who were trying to get past them. Replacing those two guys with... Wesley Matthews, who's one of the better point-of-attack defenders in the league in terms of not giving up straight-line drives. And Dennis Schroeder, who's not the same level of player defensively as Wesley Matthews, but certainly a hell of a lot better than Rajon Rondo. Adding those two guys into the Laker defensive scheme, I believe will make them much more reliable night in and night out as a defensive team, which will carry them in the regular season and, and it will prevent them from having things happen like what they had last year, which was we're way better than all these teams, but we're just going to drop a game in each playoff series because there's going to be a game where we come out and we just don't have our energy that we usually do. As far as Montrez Harrell goes, if there's, a, there's like a, a best-case scenario and a worst-case scenario. So the best-case scenario is getting next to LeBron and getting into peak physical condition as LeBron tends to do with his teammates, getting next to Anthony Davis, who can help cover for some of his defensive limitations, getting with Frank Vogel, who is an extremely gifted defensive coach. And as you've seen in a lot of these postseason uh, uh, interviews that have been done, the Laker player, players have raved and raved about just how great Frank Vogel is preparing for an opposing offense and with his scouting reports and stuff. Your hope is that all of those things that I just said lead to Montrez Harrell becoming a better defensive player than he had been in the, with the Clippers. And if that happens, then you're looking at that peak potential scenario, which is Montrez is a home run who massively raises the ceiling of the Lakers. But even in the scenario where it doesn't work out that way, he continues to be a defensive liability. The LeBrons, the Anthony Davises, the Frank Vogels of the world cannot help him in that regard. He still is a bench weapon. He still is a guy. The Lakers were giving significant minutes to JaVale McGee, who, while he had his defensive flashes, was such a space case in rotations and getting out of position. He always left his feet. He had no discipline to stay on the ground. JaVale McKee was, was not a great defensive player. Even uh, uh, Dwight Howard in some playoff series got played off the floor. So Montrez just is another guy like those two who comes with some defensive limitations but can help you in the bench lineups, who can help you against specific defensive schemes. They're going to be... <clears throat> There are going to be matchups where defenses switch everything, and it's going to help to have Montrez Harrell as an option, as a player who can bully a smaller player in a post-up mismatch. He brings a lot of things to the table that make it so that his floor is higher, meaning that the ugly version of whatever the Montrez Harrell experience looks like still ends up being pretty good and pretty impactful for the Lakers. As far as uh, Marcus Saul goes, I view him as a, um, uh, 
a great risk in the sense that it's impossible for him to be any worse than say JaVale McGee was right. Like we were just talking about. So from that standpoint, you've got a player that even if he plays 15 minutes a night for only 50 games of the season, at the very least, if you manage him and you keep him healthy, he's just an option. He's a wrinkle. He's a guy that just gives you another way to win. And that's important in the sense that in a playoff series, it's a, it's a, it's an audible that you can call to try to get things moving. If you're stuck in a matchup where you can't really get the offense moving or whatever the problem is. And then that night in night out in the regular season, as you're dealing with load management, as you're dealing with the, the fatigue and the, uh, and the struggle that comes with playing that much basketball dragged out over that many months, especially on this quick turnaround, having that veteran presence is so important for, uh, for this particular type of season for the Lakers. So again, all those things I just said, all of those signings, all of those moves were about as perfect an off, off season as you could possibly hope for as a Laker fan. I just think that the Montrez Harrell signing has potential to be what we'll, what we'll look back at as a mistake. But at the end of the day, no matter what happens, if you find yourself in a pivotal late round playoff series against the Lakers, let's say it's the Western Conference semifinals and you're playing the Warriors, you're playing the Denver Nuggets, you're playing the Utah Jazz and it's game five and the series is tied at two, the Lakers have the ability to put out Alex Caruso, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, LeBron James, Anthony Davis, and either Wes Matthews or Markeith Morris, depending on the matchup. And I know those guys are going to completely stifle you on the defensive end of the floor. And I know those guys are going to be able to find quality offense on the other end because LeBron's the best basketball player in the world. And Anthony Davis is the third or fourth best basketball player in the world. And all those other guys fit those roles absolutely perfect. So they have exactly what they need to win. And they might have what they need to be even more dominant than they were last year. And why is that important? Because like I tweeted this morning, the Lakers were one of the most dominant champions in the history of the league. If you look at just this century from the year 2000 on, they're right there with the 2001 Lakers with the 2007 Spurs as one of the most dominant playoff teams that we've seen. Basically only the 2017 Warriors being uh, demonstratively better. So from that standpoint, well, the 2001 Lakers too, but the point being they are already so, so good. And so what was beautiful about Rob Palenka did what Rob Palenka did was he took some swings, but he salvaged those core pieces that the Lakers needed to at least have a fallback plan that we know is capable of winning an NBA championship. All right, we're going to move on to uh, quickly to Trey Young and Devin Booker. <clears throat> so there are a lot, of, like I said, a lot of Atlanta Hawks fans, a lot of uh, um, Phoenix Suns fans, a lot of like general NBA fans who have been all over Twitter over the last couple of days going like, you know, you guys have done nothing but trash Trey Young, blah, 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 blah. Now he's going to get to go do his thing, blah, 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 blah. Uh, defensive of the fact that we, most of us, I, I like to think that I'm in the majority on this one, weren't about to throw a party for a guy dropping 30 points a game, giving up more than 30 on the other end, and losing almost every night. It just was never anything that was significant to me when there were other players in the league who were doing more and winning efforts. And I'm going to use myself as an example here. 
my first year playing in college, I played at uh, Pima Community College, which was a local junior college in Tucson. Uh, I literally lived with my parents and commuted to and from uh, uh, to and from uh, classes and to and from games. And I put up monster numbers. I had over 30 points in a game. I had half dozen games where I had over 20 points. I was dunking on dudes. I was shooting three pointers from 25 feet from the basket. It was awesome. We went four and 25. Our team was awful. And what was so interesting about that is each successive year after that, I played for better teams. After that, I wanted to play for a better team. So I sent a highlight tape out and I ended up getting signed by a junior college in Utah. That was a much, much better team. And we won a lot more games and my scoring went down. And I, I only averaged, I think, 12 points a game that year. I only got over 20 points once. I Most of my scoring efforts were in the teens. And it was because I was playing winning basketball. I, I, I wasn't taking the same, you know, terrible shot selection. I was taking shots within a flow of an offense. I didn't have super fresh legs on the offensive end because I had to focus on the defensive end of the floor. And you know what? I still was an all-conference player. I was not an all-conference player at Pima, even though I was putting up much better numbers because the coaching staffs around the conference who were responsible for voting for those awards, they didn't care about the big white dude at Pima that was scoring a lot of points while they were beating us by 25. They just didn't care. And more power to them. I don't blame them. And yet in Utah, when I was scoring less, but I was playing a role on a, on a program that was winning a lot more games, I ended up getting an all-conference honor because the coaches were actually paying attention to what I was doing impacting games. And then the following year after that, I played for one of the best teams in the country. I played for an NAIA school who's top five in the NAIA. We beat an NCAA Division I school, and I was playing alongside two All-American guards. And guess what? I only averaged like six points a game. I was Trevor Ariza. I shot spot-up threes. All of those isolation opportunities I was getting, all those post-up opportunities I was getting, those were gone. Now I was playing a completely different role in a much like in a in a in not just a winning environment but a championship level winning environment and i had to play differently and i got a lot more respect uh from my from my peers not only in uh on that team but around the league doing what i was doing for that specific team as one of the best teams in the country than i was scoring tons and tons of points for pima and i say all that to say this i understand that trey young's super talented I understand that Devin Booker's really talented. I was really impressed by what he did in the bubble because he was winning games. But the bottom line is, I think it's just normal human nature to feel, to, to just, to, to say, show me the money. To basically say, you know what? I'm going to form my opinion about Trey Young. I'm going to form my opinion about Devin Booker now. Now that they're playing with enough talent to get the job done. Because guess what? If Devin Booker is averaging 27 points a game on 54% effective field goal percentage, and his team goes 49 and, and 23 or whatever it is that adds up to 72. I just rushed that, so who knows? But if he does that, and then he proceeds to be as effective in a, in a playoff run, now we can have a conversation about how he's one of the 12 or 13 best players in the league. And the same goes for Trey Young. It's okay to ask them, to do it in a winning effort before giving them that, that, that recognition. You know what I'm saying? Like 
I was able to get a highlight tape from Pima. I was able to leverage that into an opportunity to play basketball at a higher level. But it's not like anybody was giving me a trophy for what I was doing then. It's not like anybody was giving me me any real recognition, and they shouldn't have been. It is a lot easier to score 30 points a game as a terrible team who rolls up into Los Angeles, or heck, you're at home in Atlanta, and L.A. is flown to town on a random February Tuesday, and LeBron and AD are looking at each other like, man, let's just get through this one, and they've barely scouted you, and they don't care and you can put up 30 points because they're sleepwalking through this random regular season game. That is different than what it's like as Chris Paul and Devin Booker and the 48-win Suns roll up into a meaningful Sunday primetime game you know, against the Milwaukee Bucks in Milwaukee, and Giannis and Coach Budenholzer have been sitting in a room looking at a whiteboard telling each other that you're dangerous – and that they need to bring their A game to beat you. That's an entirely different type of operation. And I think it's okay to withhold any sort of opinion about Trey Young and Devin Booker until they show us they can do it in this type of role on a team that's dangerous, where whether or not they perform to what their expectation is, is the difference between winning and losing, not the difference between losing by 30 or losing by 20. And so that's where I'm at with Trey Young and Devin Booker. Ask me again in a few months. Then I'll tell you how I feel about them after they've played some real basketball. So last thing I want to talk about today is this. uh, The last thing I want to talk about today is this Steph Curry phenomenon that's been going around. So a couple of my close friends that are uh, Golden State fans have frequently complained to me about the fact that while every other superstar receives a certain amount of hate, you know, which is normal, I guess, in the social media era of, of NBA basketball, that Steph Curry gets more than your average superstar. That he is too frequently, by too many people, perceived to be not even among the top tier of superstars in the league. And that he is incredibly, painfully underrated. And for the record, I agree with that. I think that Steph is painfully underrated. I think he's the second best player in the league. And I think that he's the 12th or 13th best player of all time. And I am 100% a believer in what he does to impact winning night in and night out. And I believe he deserves that recognition. But I think there is a reason why there are so many people that don't agree with me on that. And the reason why Steph has so many detractors in the world. And it's a simple result of the fact that there's just a lot of question marks surrounding Steph's individual impact in, in his uh, 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 championship pursuit over the last decade. And when I say question marks, I don't mean that, you know, you can't possibly reach any sort of conclusion. I'm just saying that there, it is possible to interpret some of the things that have happened to him over the past decade as not a result of him. And I would say that those people are wrong, But I'm saying there's a reason why they've reached that conclusion. The reality is, these are facts now. In 2015, Steph Curry benefited from a great deal of injury luck on the way to winning a championship. He played amazing. In my book, he was the finals MVP. In my book, he was a champion. But there are a lot of people who look at that playoff run and go, 
hey, you, you somehow skipped out on Chris Paul. You somehow skipped out on Kyrie Irving. You know, even in those other matchups, there were some injuries that played a role. Like, eh, okay, like, but let's see what happens. And then 2016 comes along and he loses. And then Kevin Durant comes into the picture and they win twice rather handily. But Kevin Durant was in the picture. Then 2019 comes around. Kevin Durant gets hurt and they end up losing. And then 2020 comes around and Clay Thompson's out all season and he's broken down with injury all year and they end up missing the playoffs. The point is, if you're a smart basketball fan who is watching the games and you see Steph Curry's impact, you can reach the conclusion that it's obvious, in my opinion, that he is largely responsible for the success of that franchise over the last decade and undercutting that is silly. But the reality is there is a whole lot of evidence that a lot of things have broken Steph Curry's way. And just from a shallow perspective, looking at it without really digging in too deep. And I've said the same thing about Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, both of them, when they decided to join forces, given the amount of talent that was already on that Golden State roster, they added confusion, a lack of clarity to their standing in the league. When you do it on a more traditional contender, when you do it on a team that's one of the best teams in the league instead of 10 times better than every other team in the league, it's really easy for folks to point at it and say, hey, look, like that guy's clearly the best player in the league. There's a reason why LeBron haters sound so silly when they start trying to tear him down. There is so much evidence in so many circumstances on so many different rosters that he's gonna that he's capable of winning a championship. Give him a broken down Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosch, he can win a title. Give him kind of flawed superstars and in, in Kevin uh, uh, Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving, he can win a title. Give him a stretch big like Anthony Davis, who's one of the best defensive players in the league and a gifted offensive player, he can win a championship. Give him bad rosters, he can carry him to the NBA Finals. There are all of these different examples in his career that takes away the fog. It has a, it leaves a clarity surrounding his career that makes it obvious what his impact is. Whereas with Steph Curry, because of the great deal of good fortune, every star benefits from some amount of good fortune over the course of their career. That's how they end up in the pantheon of NBA greats. But Steph Curry's good fortune that he encountered is at another level. It's not very often that you can win a championship where all of the best teams lose their lose core star rotation pieces. It's not very often that you can already have a championship contending roster like the 2020 Lakers and then add to that a perennial MVP candidate who's one of the 11 or 12 best players of all time in the heat of his prime and add him to that mix. Those sorts of things when you make that decision to play together in that circumstance, you take away some of the clarity of your own impact. Now I say props to Steph Curry because that shows you that he cares so much more about winning that he doesn't even care about his individual accolades to the extent that 
he would willingly look at that situation and go, if I add Kevin Durant, people might think he's the best player on this team. If I add Kevin Durant, people are going to think I, you know, ran from a fight with the Cleveland Cavaliers. If I add Kevin Durant, it's going to diminish what my personal legacy might show in the eyes of many. And he did it anyway, because all he cares about is winning. All I'm saying is that's what happened. Making that decision diminished some of the clarity surrounding his own personal individual greatness. And as a result, you have an army of mouth breathers out there who aren't really watching the games, who don't really see what Steph Curry brings to the table. And they use that as an example to undercut what he has done in his career. Obviously, Steph is talented enough to carry this limited Warriors team in a stacked Western Conference to the playoffs. I absolutely think he's capable of that. But the reason why you're going to have all these guys saying he can't is because they haven't seen it yet, because he's had such a good run of fortune over this stretch of his career. And a lot of those folks never watched him back in 2013 with Jarrett Jack and a baby Clay Thompson and a baby Draymond Green carry that team to within to within a couple wins of knocking off the Spurs. They weren't even watching him back then. They don't understand all the things that he's done. And that's how you end up with this type of scenario where you've got all of these guys that are massively undercutting one of the 12 best players ever. I think it's really unfortunate. Hopefully it goes away here over the next few years as Steph puts together a couple more, you know, championship level campaigns, best player in the world level campaigns. Maybe some of that doubt will leave, but that's, that's why we are where we are. And what's going to be really unfortunate. And uh, I've talked about this on Twitter a few times over the past couple over the past week, there is some danger here in this 2020 Warriors team, 2021 Warriors team. There is some danger here that it could end up going like the 2019 Lakers. You've got a lot of young players. I know Andrew Wiggins has been in the league a while, but he's still pretty young. And uh, this center they, they picked up, I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, um, but the, with the number two overall pick, it's a really, really young player. And then you've got a bunch of young role players and your only veterans on the roster. is bas- It's basically Draymond Green and Steph are the veterans on the roster. Brad Wanamaker's really young. Kelly Oubre is really young. There's a lot of youth on that roster. It's a lot like that 2019 Lakers team. So if Steph Curry, who has shown a tendency to be banged up in his career, he's missed a lot of games in almost every single season outside of maybe 2017, the reality is, is he might miss some games. And if he has a LeBron-esque 2019 season where he misses 25 games, if he misses 15 games, that team will miss the playoffs. Because that's what happens in the Western Conference with how talented all the teams are from one to this year. It's like one to 14. But back in 2019, there were, you know, 11 or 12 really, really talented teams. You just you need your best guys to be there every night or it's not going to be enough for you to get there. And what's going to be really unfortunate, and I'd say that there's roughly a coin flip chance of this happening, is if Steph Curry has another season where he's pretty banged up and they end up missing the playoffs, that army of voices that has undercut Steph Curry for his entire career, based on all of the things that I just said, those people are just going to continue to get louder and louder. And I think that that's really unfortunate. All righty. So um, 
I am still working on scheduling with Raj. You guys know him as Unwritten Rules on on here. I'm going to get him on uh, next week, and we're going to break down each of the Laker offseason moves in a little more depth. Raj is one of my favorites. I think he's a really, really smart guy. He really breaks down a lot of film. He's uh, uh, one of the nerds that I think brings great perspective. And I say basketball nerd as a, as a complimentary wor- uh, uh, term. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to breaking some, down some of these moves with him. Uh, I'm still planning on doing my special Star Wars breakdown. It's just the holiday week has been a little crazy. And then, like I said, me catching COVID kind of threw everything off. Uh, but we'll get to that next week as well. And then NBA training camps are starting. And I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a Laker uh, preseason game here within the next couple of weeks. So we'll have some Laker basketball to break down soon. Uh, but anyway, as always, uh, I really, really appreciate all of you for your support and for your listening and uh, just continue to stay tuned to my Twitter feed. And I'll let you know when I plan on doing another one of these look out on Apple podcasts, Spotify and YouTube as well. I'll tweet out the links if you missed part of this show and you want to see the whole thing. All right, guys, happy, have a happy Thanksgiving. Like I said, be careful. It's not worth catching COVID. I can promise you that enjoy the rest of your week and I will talk to you guys next week.